You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. If you are four or five, you are welcome to go to Bible study with Tom and Olivia over there and head to Bible study. And for the rest of us, let's go to the book of Ephesians. If you're visiting here with us today, we are thrilled that you are here. We've been working since the start of the year on the book of Ephesians, and we've been going uh, at a leisurely, meditative place, uh, pace through the book of Ephesians. And today we find ourselves focusing on verse 11 through 14, coming to the very end of this very long sentence of doxology that begins all the way back in verse And so what I'm going to do is, as I've done the last few weeks, I'm going to read from verse 3 through verse 14 to give us the context of this whole sentence. I'll read it one more time all together before we look and zone in uh, on verse 11 through 14. So if you've got Ephesians open, let's go ahead and begin reading God's Word starting in verse 3. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven, and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the way that your word has ministered to us these last several weeks. Lord, we've spent several weeks now looking at this glorious doxology spanning from verse 3 through verse 14. And Lord, we have been amazed as your Holy Spirit has taught us all the wonderful blessings that you have given us in Christ. And Lord, as we look to this these final verses in this doxology, verse 11 through 14, we pray that we would rejoice in the inheritance that we have received, that inheritance being the Holy Spirit himself who dwells in the hearts of believers. 
So Lord, we pray that as your word is preached, that your Holy Spirit would work in and through and in accordance with your word to build up the church to maturity and to save those who are lost. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The young live foolishly, and sometimes so do the old, right? It's not just the young. You can be old and foolish as well as young and foolish. But youthfulness tends to be a pretty deadly combination for the fool, right? Because youthfulness brings with it both confidence and ignorance. That's, a, that's the food by which fools feed. Confidence and ignorance put together. So I remember when I was a young fool, right? I was a senior in high school, and some man in the church started talking to me about this small business that I could start in college that would generate thousands of dollars a month quickly and immediately. So as an ambitious young man, eager to learn and eager to make his mark on the world, I thought, man, this is going to be great. I'm going to combine college with my aspiring career in music. And then, you know, I've got a few extra grand a month to live off of, off of this really easy business, right? That sounds like a perfect way to get the leg up on my peers and to advance and to make my mark on the world. But thankfully, this young, confident, ignorant fool had some wise parents, right? My wise parents sat down with me, and I remember we were sitting in Boston looking at a school, and they sat down with me, and I was laying out my big master plan of how I could live in Boston and make all this money, and everything would be just fine. And so they sat down, they listened to me so patiently, and then they slowly began to burst my bubble on the whole small business thing as they just took a piece of paper and drew a little pyramid on it, right? And I realized that my ambitions of thousands of dollars of discretionary income quickly uh, eroded away. And I learned an important lesson that day from their instruction, and maybe you've learned this lesson as well. If it seems too good to be true, it's probably not true. <laughs> that tends to be a lesson we learn. If it sounds too good to be true, we immediately tend to be suspicious of that news. After all, anyone can give you a promise. You can make $1,000 a month. Anybody can give you any sort of dream, any sort of goal, any aspirations, but it might not have any substance to it. After all, we, we've, we're, we're Americans, right? We're used to being marketed to, and so we know the gotcha of the marketing of the sleazy salesman. And we've been duped thousands of times by companies that tend to overpromise and then underdeliver. So when we hear the good news, really good news, the good news of the gospel, we can sort of tilt our heads a little bit. And we can squint our eyes at the person sharing it with us. And we can wonder, how, how can such good news be true? It almost seems too good to be true. So as we've recalled all these wonderful blessings that God has given the church in Christ, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. If you've been around these last few weeks, I pray that you've been swept away by them. I know I have, as these promises are so wonderful, so grand, so glorious, so precious, that part of us, maybe you've thought this, how can they be true? How can they be true? They almost seem too good to be true. We fear that Almost God might be spiritually pulling our leg a bit. Are these blessings really just so freely given by God with no strings attached? Are we really adopted into God's family or is he being insincere? Are, am I really redeemed from my sin or, or do I need to contribute my own penance in a way in order to justify myself? Right? Such doubts and indeed suspicions of the gospel come from our hearts when we hear it, and yet 
God, being so gracious, has anticipated these doubts. He's anticipated your suspicions. And so today we're going to look at how God responds to your doubting. We will look at the Holy Spirit. And we will look at the Holy Spirit's great work in redemption and the role that he plays in providing for the believer an assurance of our salvation. Now, we have seen the Father's plan to choose his saints and to adopt them into his family. We have seen over the course of this blessing, this doxology, we have seen the Son redeem and provide us with forgiveness through his blood, and then we're united to him in faith. And now, as we come to the tail end of this doxology, beginning in verse 11, we see the Holy Spirit at work, who applies the work of redemption to our hearts and grants us assurance that we are indeed children of God. So as we walk through the end of this grand doxology, starting all the way back in verse 3, here is our outline for this morning. First, we're going to see the inheritance obtained. We'll talk about what that means. Second, we'll talk about the purpose of God accomplished. Third, we'll see the word of truth believed. Fourth, we'll see the Holy Spirit applied. And then fifth, we'll see the glory of God praised. So that's going to be our outline this morning. And I pray that if you believe upon this gospel, and if you've been adopted in God's family, that your hope in this gospel would be strengthened, that you would have assurance that these promises are not too good to be true. They are good, certainly, but they certainly are true. And I pray that if you don't know this gospel, if you don't know this Christ, if you don't know this Jesus, that you would come to believe in him and so receive his Holy Spirit. So let's first begin with the inheritance obtained, starting in verse 11. So we get another strand of praise here that begins with that all-important phrase that we've seen all across this doxology, that phrase, in him, verse 11. In him. We've seen it so many times, very similar back to verse 7. And so as Paul moves on in this, as he's making his way to the end of this very long sentence, he reminds us, he wants us to consider the certainty of God's promises, and he reminds us yet again that all these benefits, all this blessing that we've been talking about, come from Jesus, right? It's in him. In him, he is the source. And it is only those who are in Christ, only those who are in him, only they receive the blessing of God. And so Paul elaborates on what we have received. Look at how it starts in verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, our English translations here have to make a bit of an interpretive decision for us. Because in the original language, you could translate this opening phrase of verse 11 as we are God's inheritance or we have obtained an inheritance. So you could translate it as we are God's inheritance or we have obtained an inheritance. In other words, the question is over whose inheritance is Paul talking about in verse 11? The original term here, kleros, in the Greek is used frequently in the Greek Old Testament to describe God's possession of his people. So Deuteronomy 32 verse 9, but the Lord's portion in his people, Jacob his allotted heritage, kleros, right? It's the same word here. Or Psalm 33 verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage, inheritance, same word in Psalm 33. So with the strong Old Testament precedent, 
particularly in the Greek Old Testament, perhaps the emphasis that Paul's making in verse 11 is on God's heritage of his people. This is God's heritage, his possession, his ownership of them. But I think the the way the ESV translates it is probably more accurate because this doxology, as we've seen over the course of verse 3 through 14, is all about God's blessing upon his people. The whole doxology is focused on all the way God has blessed us, meaning the church. So both are true, right? We are God's heritage. That's absolutely true. And God gives us an inheritance. Yes, that's true as well. But I think the ESV and most of our English translations get it right here. The inheritance introduced in verse 11 is our inheritance, the inheritance that God gives us. It is the summation of all the sorts of blessings Paul has described with us so far. And I think this makes sense, particularly in verse 14, which is clearly a reference to our inheritance. So it makes sense to see this in a consistent way. So another observation before we get too deep into this text to observe is to notice, and maybe if you're an astute Bible reader, you picked this up as we were reading the text, is you paid attention to the pronoun changes across these four verses. Let's reread the text again and notice the pronouns. This is a, a helpful hint as you're studying the Bible. Pay attention when you see pronouns shifting like this because there's meaning there to discover. Look at verse 11. Let's start and read and pay attention to the pronouns. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of, the tr- word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you catch the pronoun change? All right, it goes from first person plural second person plural, back to first person plural, right? So Paul, even here at the end of his doxology, is introducing a key theme that will be developed later on in his letter, the unity of Jew and Gentile Christians as one people in Christ. The we of verse 11 and 12 refers to the Jews who first received the message of the gospel. Paul and his apostles So similar to the opening of Romans, the gospel goes first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. But the mystery of God's cosmic plan, as we talked about a little bit last week, this mysterious will now revealed, God has now laid his cards on the table. We see that God not only intends to save the Jewish people, but he intends to save Gentiles as well and to unite them as one in Christ. So as Paul emphasizes in verse 13, in him, you also when you heard, in other words, Paul's stressing here the Gentile Ephesians, made up predominantly of Gentiles, that now also the Gentiles in Ephesus now share in this same inheritance. And here's the really good news about what Paul is helping us see here, is that the Gentiles, which is most of us in this room, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, right? If if you're a Gentile, the good news is that the Gentiles aren't getting the leftovers from Israel's inheritance but we share in the same inheritance. Notice the switch back to the first person plural in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, Jew and Gentile alike, until we acquire possession of it. This is miraculous, right? For a Gentile to convert to Judaism in the Old Testament, he was called a a proselyte. And a believer, he was a believer in the God of Israel who did not share in the inheritance of Israel. 
He received no land allotment, and though he might worship the true God, he was alienated from God's promises. Paul stresses that, yes, yes, God has elected Israel as his son, and he's chosen to bless him, but God, according to his mysterious will, is now expanding his family. He's adding to it. He's expanding to the nations. In Christ, he is now grafting we Gentiles into the promises of Israel. So therefore, all people, not just the Jewish people, can receive blessing from God. We can receive his fatherly love. We can receive forgiveness of sin. And yes, we can receive a heavenly inheritance. In other words, we receive an inheritance because we are truly God's children. Truly. And consider the wealth of God's inheritance. When we talk about God's inheritance, what are we talking about? It's the cosmos. Everything belongs to him. He owns it all. And yet God shares his inheritance with his children. He holds nothing back. And he does not show partiality to any one of us based off of our race. Because we are all his children if you are in Christ. You see, you might be tempted to think, and I know I think this way sometimes. Well, well, obviously we know Jesus deserves the inheritance, right? He earned it. He's the firstborn son. He, he's the perfect son of God. And sure, right, we understand that Israel's God's chosen people. And sure, Israel ought to receive the inheritance. But then you think, well, who am I, right? We, we, we live, and I know I live this way. We live as doubting sons and daughters. So very thankful for God's adoption of us, but sort of secretly questioning in our hearts whether he really meant it or not. Am I just God's charity case? Does he really love me as a father or does he just tolerate me? Must I live in fear, wondering that if I fail or stumble or fall, that the God who has adopted me might cast me out of his family, making me an orphan yet again? Christian, cast all those doubts from your mind. They are not true. Take them out and throw them away from your heart, from your mind. Our text shows us just the opposite. How do you know that God has adopted you? How do you know that you're his child? Well, children receive an inheritance. That's how we know. And if you are in Christ, you have and you will receive an inheritance. Notice the past tense of the verb opening in verse 11. In him we have obtained. Have obtained, meaning it's it's already been received, right? The inheritance that if you are in Christ, it already belongs to you. You already have it. And as we will see shortly, we have all received the down payment of our heavenly inheritance and the greatest deposit that anyone could ever give, God himself, the Holy Spirit, gifted to us. See the connection that Paul makes in Romans 8 between the Holy Spirit, adoption, and inheritance. You can just listen as I read Romans 8, verse 14 through 17. But notice how Paul and Romans weaves these things together just as he does here. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit, the Spirit, himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see how Paul weaves all these things together? 
And so church, the, the good news of the gospel is that by the merit of Christ and by the Father's choosing, we have been adopted in Christ. And so therefore we share in Christ's inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ. And look at, as we read from 1 Peter 1 this morning, he has caused us to be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How precious it is to be God's child and how blessed it is to have an inheritance. And then the second thing we'll observe in the text is the purpose of God accomplished. We see this particularly in verse 11 through 12. Evidently, Paul found great comfort in the doctrine of election. While many who first think about God's purposeful sovereignty over salvation can find themselves troubled by such questions, as the Spirit grows our understanding of the Scriptures, countless Christians have found this doctrine, this doctrines of grace to be a great anchor for their soul. Jonathan Edwards had such a testimony. He loathed God's sovereignty for many years, at one time considering it a detestable and horrible thing, but eventually he would say, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. He found comfort in it. Throughout verses 3 through 14, if you've been following along, Paul emphasizes that the triune God's glorious plan of redemption happens at the determination of his will. And so he continues to emphasize that all the blessings that you and I have received come from a God who has by his sovereignty determined to bless us. Look at verse 5 in Ephesians 1. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Skip down to verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And now look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Paul thinks this is such an important point that we need to get. He repeats it three times in one sentence to make sure that we get it, that God has purposed this. He has willed our salvation. So we cannot miss his point here, that the entire work of redemption is directed by a God whose sovereignty sovereignly wills it to be. Simply put, what Paul stresses here is what God has predestined from eternity past, it will come to be. No one can thwart his will because there is much about God, how God works his will here that we don't understand. And we confess that. How indeed does God elect and predestine while at the same time preserving human responsibility? Such questions that theologians will continue to wrestle, wrestle over until the new heavens and the new earth. But here's the thing. There should be no doubt in any Christian's heart who believes in the authority of the word of God that God sovereignly accomplishes his purpose. That we know clearly from Scripture. A God who cannot bring his will to pass is simply not much of a God, is he? And even if we don't understand the, all of God's purposes, why he chooses to save some and not others, for example, we should all still our tongues before we dare accuse him of injustice. As the reformer David Dixon wrote, he said, God did not take us into counsel with him when he decreed our happiness. Simply put, 
God didn't consult with me. He didn't consult with you when he established his will from eternity past. We weren't there. We weren't needed. And God, who is goodness and wisdom by his nature, can only will what is absolutely good and what is absolutely wise. So when it comes to this matter, we should take the words from the preacher of Ecclesiastes and put them into practice. We should let our words be few. We must recognize God's prerogative to govern as he determines wise to do so. And we should marvel that any one of us had been saved, let alone given such an inheritance. You see, if these doctrines are difficult for you, you're, you're not alone. Many Christians struggle with them. But again, we have to remember as we consider these questions, we are the clay, and we dare not protest against the potter. In a lengthy and convicting quote, let me share a quote from a reformer. He said, if you want to call the will of God into question and think that he ought to explain it to you, ask the devil to be your judge because he will side with you against God and you will appear to be wise and righteous with him while God is condemned for being stupid and unjust. This is my answer to those who ask, what becomes of people who have not heard or who lived before the preaching of the gospel was spread throughout the world and thinking that it should not have been deliberately delayed until the last days? A godly and faithful person adores what God has said and done and does not get upset or call him into question. He gives glory to God's wisdom and righteousness even when he does not understand why God has done things one way and not another. Simply put, we accept God's word as it has been revealed. And even with our limited understanding, we must always, always praise the Lord for the wisdom of his will and give him the glory that he is due. After all, this is why God has, 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 has purposed in the church. This is why he has chosen to bless us. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. That's what God has willed for us. And so as Paul writes our doxology here, he does not see God's will or the purpose of the doctrine of election. He doesn't see it as a problem to be discarded. He doesn't see it as a riddle to fret over. Paul sees it as a comfort to his soul, one that actually spurs on this entire sentence. This one lengthy sentence of praise is grounded and God's sovereign purpose to redeem and bless the church. God accomplishes his purpose. He will do so. He will save the church. And even though God has determined, we, the church, must still respond to the gospel. And that leads to the third thing, the word of truth believed in verse 13. Let it never be said in any of our mouths that the doctrine of election does away with evangelism simply not true. Had God wanted to, of course, he could have brought his elect to salvation by a secret work of the Holy Spirit, without you, without me, without any of us uttering a word. He certainly had the ability to do so, but yet God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to be the means by which his church is called into its blessing. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so gospel proclamation is required of men and women like us if we will be united to Christ. 
God has chosen to use his church's faithful sharing of the gospel and preaching and in your personal evangelism, that is the means by which God accomplishes his sovereign purpose in the world. God has willed the salvation of his church, but that salvation comes from hearing and believing the gospel. Paul makes this connection in verse 13. Look at what he says. In him you also, again, speaking primarily to the Ephesians here, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and what? And believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Right? The elect always hear the gospel and respond in faith to the gospel. God has predestined the Ephesian church to salvation. But like the first who hoped in Christ, the Ephesians heard the word and believed in the word. And what is the word? What is this gospel of salvation that we are to proclaim to the world and that the Ephesians believe? Well, it's the good news that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the good news that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Put simply, what do we do when we proclaim this gospel? We proclaim Christ. We proclaim his coming into the world. We proclaim his righteousness. We proclaim his death upon the cross that atones for our sins. We proclaim the resurrection of the dead, his coming again. So we tell the world, that if they would humble themselves before God, and if they would turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ, thereby joining their hearts to Christ, they will be forgiven, they'll be redeemed, they'll be blessed with an inheritance and given the Holy Spirit. The gospel of our salvation is good news that needs to be proclaimed to the world. And church, we are the means by which this gospel is spread. So if you're not a Christian this morning, we are so thrilled that you are here, and we pray that this gospel that I just described for you, of what Jesus has done, that you would hear this gospel and respond this day by turning from your sins and putting your faith in Christ. And so you can be a part of this glorious inheritance that the church has received in Christ. But let me urge every Christian in this room to the work of evangelism. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Remember, church, we have talked repeatedly about God's sovereignty over redemption, but the doctrine of election ought to never be used as an evangelistic filter, telling us who and who not to share the gospel with. No, the doctrine of election instead ought to give us increasing confidence to share the gospel with everyone. And it gives us the confidence knowing that God will save through our efforts according to his purpose. So it frees us up then to share the gospel with everybody we can and to do so frequently and confidently knowing that the spirit of God can and will be at work to bring faith even in the hardest of hearts and even among the hardest of unreached people groups. That even if you, if you feel like me, you feel this way, even if you are the most pathetic evangelist in the world, Right? Even if you're weak and feeble and you stutter over your words and you awkwardly stumble out of you as you try to share the gospel with your coworker, 
right? We know that the Lord can still use you, yes, even you, to bring another soul to Christ. So church, go and share the gospel boldly and without fear to our community and to our world. But just how does that faith come about? Well, Paul will explain later in Ephesians 2.8 just how that faith comes about. Look at 2.8 if you want to sneak ahead a little bit. Chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Faith itself is a gift from God. And it is clear that belief is what brings salvation. And it's preceded by an inner work of the Holy Spirit causing the soul to be born again. Jesus said in John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So it is the Spirit of God who regenerates the heart as the word is preached, gifting the hard-hearted sinner with conviction over his sin, repentance, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it is the Spirit who applies the work of redemption to the hearts of God's elect in response to the preaching of God's word. And that leads, fourthly, the Holy Spirit applied. Verse 13 and 14. Throughout this doxology, Paul has given us a bit of a glimpse into the purposes of God, stretching all the way back to the foundations of the earth. We peer into glorious mysteries that we barely understand, but God has shown us something of his inner Trinitarian work and will. We have seen the Father as the architect of redemption, planning and choosing to adopt his church in Christ. We have seen the Son as the one who accomplishes the work of redemption, as he redeems, forgives, and unites us to himself. And now here we see the Spirit who applies the work of redemption and grants the Christian assurance of their salvation. As Paul praises the Holy Spirit, he emphasizes three key ways the Holy Spirit applies the work of redemption. First one is this. First, the Holy Spirit is called the promised Spirit. The promised Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives faith and applies salvation. This is the Spirit that was promised from the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 39. The Lord announces that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Ezekiel 36, the Lord says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and he will move the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And of course, on the day of Pentecost, the Lord fulfilled all that prophetic promise and expectation as the Holy Spirit came upon the church in power. The Holy Spirit is the inheritance of the church, and he is the one who was promised by God. But second, Paul says, the Holy Spirit is the one who seals, the one who seals. In Paul's day, a seal validated a document. Paul calls Abraham's circumcision a seal in Romans 4.11. Uh, Pilate marked the tomb of Christ with his own seal, securing it by his authority. The language of sealing communicates God's ownership. In a way, the Holy Spirit is God's brand upon his people. It's what marks them as his own. And it is the security of the promise of salvation. So the Holy Spirit does his work of sealing upon our profession of faith. 
that if you are a Christian, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. So therefore, we are permanently marked as gods, set apart for holy living and set apart for God's glory. The Holy Spirit is the inarguable mark that we are the children of God, that we are the redeemed. And then third, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee, our guarantee. The proof of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is that down payment that we receive of the great heritage that we've received from Christ. So I know many people have been buying and selling houses recently. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. Now, when you think about buying a house, what you need to do is you need to put up due diligence money to take the house off the market and to do your due diligence. Make sure it's not eaten up with termites or something like that, right? And so you, you, you pay some money for the owner to take the house off the market so you can inspect it and make sure it's a house you really want to buy. And so cash has been put forward in some way in the due diligence. But of course, the buyer still has the opportunity to walk away from the house should they not like what they find. But when you sit down at closing, and you sit down at closing and you pass over that down payment check, the deal is done. The house is now yours. And as we consider the Holy Spirit, he is the guarantee of our inheritance. Church, here's the good news. God doesn't do due diligence. He doesn't need to. His purchase of you in Christ is not contingent. He doesn't put you under contract only to see if your faults and failures might cause him to question his decision and then back out of the purchase. No, he has given us his guarantee, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. He has given us a lavish down payment ensuring that his purchase of our souls is not in question. It is sure. The Holy Spirit is indeed proof that we are children of God and that our share in Christ's inheritance is final and irreversible. In other words, those who are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit forever belong to God, forever. Not one of God's children will be kicked out of his family. Not one will be abandoned by his fatherly love. Not one child in Christ will miss his or her share in the inheritance. It's not going to happen. As Paul says, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee until we acquire possession of it. Or to translate it literally, until our possession is redeemed. You see, we have present benefits that we receive in Christ through our redemption. Go back in verse 7 if you need a refresher on those. But our redemption is also a future reality as well as a present one. And so we look forward in faith and in hope to the great day of Christ where we will have our redemption complete. And as God's children, we will live with the Lord for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the Holy Spirit then is the irrefutable fact of our present and future redemption. Both of those are guaranteed by the indwelling Holy Spirit and the believer. You see, every Christian is eternally secure in Christ because of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit not only applies the work of redemption, causing our hearts to be regenerated, but he is also the one who keeps us in the faith until glory. So the Holy Spirit is the great assurance of the Christian. He causes faith and sustains faith in the hearts of God's people. In Romans, Paul writes this. He says, the Spirit himself 
bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And so we will arrive in the presence of the Father, in his glory, how? By the powerful, preserving work of the Holy Spirit. The fact that you, in Christ, still profess Jesus to this day is an indicator of the Holy Spirit's ongoing, preserving work. Because trust me, if it was up to you, if it was up to me, it'd be long gone by now. The Holy Spirit is so gracious, not only creating faith, but sustaining it until glory. So look at your your life today. Do you possess the guarantee of the Holy Spirit? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.22 that God has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Is that you? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Is he leading you to an increasing understanding of God's word? Is the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin and leading you to repentance? It's what he does in the believer. Are you growing in godliness? Are you becoming increasingly more mature and godly over the course of your Christian life? That's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. Is obedience to God the hallmark of your life? We look at your life and lay it bare. Would would a Christian come by and say, that's an obedient brother. That's an obedient sister. Not perfectly so. Of course, we all sin. But the general characteristic of your life is one of obedience and submission to the word of God. You see, are you growing in the fruit of the spirit year by year? All those wonderful fruit, love, patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, are those things describing your life increasingly so? Such are the hallmarks of those who possess the Holy Spirit of God. And as we see the evidence of the Spirit of God in our lives, so too can we grow in our apprehension of the assurance of salvation that we have in Christ. This is good news. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. And that leads fifthly to the glory of God praise. As we conclude Paul's very long doxology, he does so with a final shout of praise. And it's not accidental that he chooses to end this way. Look at how he ends. To the praise of his glory. The praise of his glory. That phrase is used three different times in this doxology, each emphasizing three critical aspects of God's plan of redemption. It's used in verse 1-5 to refer to God's adoption of his church. Verse 11, to describe the inheritance of the church. And verse 7 and verse 14, to describe the redemption of the church. Adoption, inheritance, redemption. All why? To the praise of his glory. So as we've studied all these blessings that God has poured out upon us in Christ, our response must be worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So our response to all of this wonderful description of how God has blessed it ought to be praise, ought to be a marveling, ought to be a joy unbound, because the chief aim in all that God does and all that he purposes and all that he works according to the sovereignty of his will is his own glory. That's why. And so he has planned. He has willed, he has acted from eternity past to lift high his name, to showcase his attributes, to make his holiness supreme over all. But yet, and here's the marvelous thing I hope you get, the marvelous thing that we see in this doxology 
is that even though God has willed and purposed his glory, God has chosen to glorify himself by redeeming us. Isn't that amazing? It's almost too wonderful and humbling even to consider that God's glory is most exalted as God saves us from our sin, as he forgives us through the blood of Christ, as he unites us to him forever and pours out the inheritance of the cosmos upon us, as we are bounded and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that just amazing? We can understand that God does indeed do all things for his glory. We get that. He's God. He deserves that. But he has chosen to make himself glorified by blessing the church, that we are just recipients of his generosity and his love and his redemption. You see, Christian, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a recipient of these blessings, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are no distant observer to God's glory, but you are the means by which God is glorifying himself. You are a participant in these blessings. They are yours. You have received God's blessing. And what should our response be? Glory to God. Praise God. And God has assembled us, hasn't he? As a ragtag, broken group of sinners. No offense, there's nothing special about you guys. <laughs> you're, you're a great church, but we're a mess in so many ways, aren't we? We're filled with sin. We fall short constantly, but yet God has brought us together, a broken group of sinners, and has poured out lavishly his own grace and his own mercy, every ounce of it, undeserved and unmerited by you and me. You see, the gospel is not too good to be true. It is verified. It is certain by the will of God. It is certain by the resurrection of the Son of God from the grave. And it is certain because of the indwelling Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people right here in this room. We know that God's redemption is certain as we live our lives for his glory. And may those who don't know this glorious God who blesses, today may you be awakened by the Holy Spirit to put your faith in Jesus Christ and so share in with us all the blessings that God has poured out in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come so humbled, Lord, that our redemption would be the means by which you from eternity past decided to bring yourself glory. Lord, we are amazed at your wisdom, at your grace, at your mercy towards us in Christ. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that for every believer in this room who possesses the indwelling Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would grow in increasing assurance of our salvation as we see the evidence of the working of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, may we walk in the Spirit day by day. Lord, may we live out of the wonderful promises that we have seen described here in the doxology. And Lord, so may we live our lives for your glory, your praise, your honor. Lord, you are a wise and good God. And Lord, we are amazed at your goodness to us. So Lord, we pray that we might respond to this text, this doxology, to the gospel, or that we would respond with joyful and worshiping hearts, not just here, but day by day, overjoyed, Lord, that you have saved us in Christ. 
But Father, I do pray, Lord, for those in this room who don't know Christ. Lord, I pray that today you might convict them of their sin. And Lord, that they wouldn't shut that down in their hearts when they sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit, because Lord, it's your Holy Spirit at work. And Father, I pray that you would overcome their resistance. And Lord, that you would help them to see their great need for a Savior, their great need for a Redeemer, their great need for the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, that you would help them to see that all of that is provided in Christ and more than they could ever imagine. And Lord, I pray that you might lead them to repentance and faith today. Lord, that they would put their salvation and put their faith and salvation for Christ. And Lord, that they would be given at this very moment the inheritance of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for those who are under the conviction of sin, that they would talk to a, a friend who brought them, that they would talk to me or another member here about how they can become a Christian, how they can become a member of Christ's church, how they can be a recipient of these blessings that we described. So Father, we trust that you will work in this time of response according to your providential will. And Lord, we praise you and we give you glory for the great work of redemption. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.